going to be in Ephesians 3 today. If you wanted to turn there or swipe there with me, um, that'd be great. And just let me know when you're there. If I'm going too fast, say, hold up. Hold up. Okay. All right. So this is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we pick it up in chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14. So we read this. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you, Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages, uh, for, for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, his purpose was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. It's a lot going on there. A lot happening there. A lot going on. A lot going on in Paul. Now, I wanted to take simply a quick whistle-stop tour of where we've been in Ephesians. And uh, we're going to mainly do this through three different passages in the, first three pa- in the first three chapters. And the third one will come later in the teaching um, but the th- and they're going to be really easy to remember because they're uh, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 10. And this sort of sums up where we've been and where we're headed as far as identity is concerned and as far as w- what we carry uh, as uh, followers of Jesus um, in, uh, in this world. So quickly, Ephesians 1, 10 says, it tells us, uh, Paul tells us God's plan for the fullness of time. His, his entire purpose, your, your being here, the fullness of time, where the earth is headed, was to gather up, gather up all things 
uh, in heaven and all things on earth. There's one, history is headed one direction. And Paul writes, here's Ephesians 1.10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And this is sort of how we've been um, discussing this passage. This is sort of like the, the purpose of Jesus coming, Paul is saying, uh, and the kind of language we've been using here at Vineyard Cleveland is not this sort of thing of like going to heaven after you die. That's not the scene that we're given in Revelation. In Revelation, we're told of a new Jerusalem coming down to earth. This is where we're headed. It's not that Jesus died on the cross to take you to heaven in the by and by. Jesus died on the cross and then was risen from the grave to put heaven into you. And so God is in the middle of the secret plan to rescue men and women so that when the fullness of time comes, heaven comes to earth. God is in on this plan, and now you've been let in on this plan to colonize earth with the life of heaven. His plan is to gather up all things in heaven and on earth in unity under Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're called to live already and not yet lives. And that's where the tension is, right? Because we look around the city of Cleveland, we look around and we see uh, the heroin epidemic is taking many lives in our city and in our region. And we say, well, how are we to live as if this is true in a world where we look out and don't see heaven on earth? I mean, if this is heaven on earth, I'm not sure if I want that. Isn't that what you, is that what you see? Yet we're called to fix, like Hebrews says, we're called to fix our eyes on the invisible things. And that's an impossible assignment. <laughs> Save Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes on the invisible things. Because the actual reality of what's going on right now in our world is Ephesians 1.10. God, through the person of Jesus, is gathering all things, all things, all people in unity under the lordship of Jesus. Okay, God's plan, done, the fullness of time. Ephesians 2.10, so where do we come in? Where do we play a role? And this speaks to our identity. Remember last week we talked about that we are the handiwork of God. We talked about Banksy, remember? Banksy, the artist in, in London. No one really knows who he is. But when you, when you see a Banksy uh, painting on a London subway or on, an, on a wall in Palestine, you know that he created that work of art. So the signature of Banksy is inherent in, the, in his work. And that's what we said. It's kind of like with the Father. In Ephesians 2.10, we read this. For we are God's handiwork 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we read that, please don't read like, oh, ho-hum, he's talking about like doing things here. Every artist, every creative who reads this verse should be lit up inside because it's less about like not about like staying clean prepared in Christ Jesus for us to do good works not doing wrong things no 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 because of God's plan for the fullness of time in Ephesians 1:10 and Ephesians 2:10 uh, okay so the church for so long has like separated the creative stuff as like you know we can take it or leave it the arts, we can take it or leave it. But what Paul is saying here is that the people of God are the, poe- the poema of God. That as you set your hands to things, you are part, you play a role in the recreation of all things, in the beautifying of reminding this world that it's glorious. You make this world glorious because you are the artwork of God unfolding in your life. And whether that's through entrepreneurial activities in business, whether that's through writing a poem, whether that's through a brilliant engineering mind that you have to set your hands to thing you... In other words, you carry uh, heavenly solutions to earthly problems. You're called as the poema of God to do good work in the world. To do good work. To do good work in the world, to make things beautiful, to remind the world that it's still worth saving. So you're called to be, you're the poema of God, you're the artwork of God. Yeah, and just the quick note there that it's, it's not about sin avoidance, but it's about kingdom advancement. You know, God's not interested in the, in the failure that you see on your life, he's more interested in the favor that rests on it. And that verse, that verse proves that. He's so into the favor that's resting on your life to do good work in the world and remind the world that it's glorious, created by God. Yeah, we talked about that old glory be prayer and in the Catholic tradition, you remember that? Glory be to the Father, glory be to the Son, glory be to the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say? World without end. World without end. World without end. Ah, so good. So, the interlude now. You know, because your, your life is the poema of God, we can sort of misread that, and we have for so long in the evangelical world, and we can misread that as like, you know, one of the four spiritual laws, you know what I'm talking about, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Show me one place in the New Testament where Jesus tells his disciples, I have a wonderful plan for your life. You won't find it. Why won't you find it? Well, because it's quite the contrary. Remember how we said that the cross is where dreams begin last week? It's not at Disneyland where dreams begin. The cross begins 
All dreaming starts at the cross. So Jesus, no, he never says that. He never says that he has a wonderful plan for your life to the disciples. But what he did tell them is he said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to need to pick up or take up your cross. Pick it up. So whenever God is at work, there's a cost. And whenever we are called to follow Jesus, there will be a cross. There's always a cost when God's at work, and there will always be a cross involved when he calls you to follow him. And here's Paul in Ephesians 3, sitting in a prison. And he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And he's thankful from the prison cell. And that's where we're going to start today. Dang, 15 minutes. This is going to be a quick read. Um, Okay. So the cost of inclusive community. Remember last week... um, Paul talks about insiders and outsiders and what he means by that. And then there's a lot of language about Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is in prison, and a lot of folk would um, agree the reason why Paul is in prison here. Yeah, I'm with you, buddy. It's hot in here. Are the fans on? Okay. Um, And the thermostats are down. Dang. Holy Spirit, maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, Paul, yeah, so most folk would agree that Paul is in prison, and here's why. Paul's in prison because he took a Gentile from the outer court into the inner court. Big no-no. Thrown in prison, sitting down. Now, to, under, to better understand what's happening here, and why Paul is in prison, you have to understand Paul. More on him in a moment. But you have to kind of understand the context for where he's writing from. Paul is a Jew. Paul is a Jew among Jews. Dad was a Pharisee. His dad's dad was probably a Pharisee. Very much zealous for the things of the law. Very much zealous for the things of God. And then... Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changes everything in his life. And so so now Jesus is like, you can either um, stay there on the road blind, or (laughs) you can take the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's a problem for Paul. Do you see how this is a problem for Paul? I don't know about you, but in a lot of these different situations in life, in my heart, and if we were really honest with one another, you would say in your heart as well, if Jesus were to come to us and say, yeah, you know, I want you to go to this other people um, who, you know, you don't particularly, not that you don't particularly care for, but that you despise and are actively, 
you'd be like, I'm not going, what, what the heck are you talking about? You want me to go to them? To the Gentiles? And now, here is Paul, more on that in a sec, here is Paul in a prison cell. Because he takes the hand of an outsider and leads him in. Inclusive community is going to cost you, and I don't know what the cost is for you. There might be, it cost, it cost Paul, um, cost Paul his life. It'll cost you in different ways. I don't know what your story is. I've sat down and listened to some of your stories, and I know, I know that it, following Jesus is costing some of you in some really significant ways right now. Following Jesus always comes with a cost. Grace is not cheap. Grace is costly. It costs Jesus his life. It may cost you in in the kind of company that you keep. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you financial hardship. It may cost you time. It may cost you a whole number of different things. It may cost you your vision of success, your, your dream of success that you've had hatching in your head for 15, 20, 30 years of what your life might look like. And then Jesus enters your life and says, not this way, this way. It could cost you there. It might cost you your business. It could cost you um, your family. It could cost you a number of different things, but one thing is true. It's going to cost you. If you're going to say yes to following Jesus, it's going to cost you. And if you're experiencing a cost right now for following Jesus, that's a good thing. That's a sign that you're headed in the right direction. Because, see, your territory has adversities and adversaries. And these are signs that your direction is aligning with your destiny. If you're not experiencing a cost right now, that's when you need to worry. Because exclusive community costs you nothing. But inclusive community will cost you everything. Everything. And so I want to encourage you today in that. In the cost, I want to encourage you with Joshua 1.9. Don't shrink back. Don't be timid. If you're going through it right now, be encouraged. That's a sign that God's favor is resting on your life. In Christ Jesus. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep on going. When someone looks you in the eye and calls you a liar, you keep on going. When someone looks in your eye and tells you that you're going to hell, or that you have demons inside of you, you keep on going. Don't give up. And don't give in. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. 
And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Uh. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So good. The mystery of Christ shared in Ephesians 3, verse 6. Paul writes, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together, together with Israel, members together, together of one body, and shares together, together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Mystery, that word mystery, what's that mean? What's Paul getting at that we're members together? There's, it means that there's an unfolding of God's plan to restore creation back into intimacy with him. And that's amazing. What's Paul talking about specifically? Paul is talking about the promise made to Abram. Remember when Abram gets his name changed to Abraham? Sarai gets her name changed to Sarah. And the promise that God makes to Abraham, remember? And then at night, the Lord passes through with a torch by his sleeping bags. And the promise that God makes to Abraham is several fold. He promises Abraham land. He says, this will be your land and not just you. And Abraham's getting old. And God says to Abraham, this land does not just belong to you. It belongs to your children and your children's children and their children's children's children. Legacy stuff. And then remember, Sarah laughs at God because she's old and you'd laugh too if God came to you when you were 80 and said you're going to have a son. And that's why Isaac is called Isaac. She laughed. Descendants, God tells Abraham, look into the stars. Look up at the stars. Do you see the stars? That's how numerous your children will be. When Sarah was barren, God tells Abraham this. Amazing. So this is the promise that we share in, in Christ Jesus. It would be a really interesting study, and we don't have time for it right now. It would be a really interesting study about how many times Paul uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the hinge pin that all of the promises of God fall upon. The cornerstone, Paul told us in chapter 2. Everything rests on Jesus. All of the promises of God in other places are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You are sons and daughters. Where? In Christ Jesus. It's all in Christ Jesus. And being an heir to those promises, sharing together, means that you don't have to strive and work to earn that inheritance. And that's a good word for us today. Good work for you to do. What is the good work for you to do? To enter into Jesus' rest. To enter into Sabbath with the Prince of Peace. To find calming waters 
You lead me beside still waters. That's the good work that God has set aside for you to do. That's part of the recreation of all things. And that's amazing. And that's what Paul is saying is a mystery that you've been let in. You've been let in. You're outsiders. If you claim Jesus as Savior, you were once an outsider and now you're in. You share in the promises on the favor that rests upon before the people of Israel, now, God says, is open to all people, every tribe and tongue in the world. You share in that, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And that's good news. It's good news because that means that the secret is out. And in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the plan is beginning to take shape. It's starting to come together. Can you feel it? At the cross, there's rumors happening. It says that Jesus went down to Hades after he was crucified and had a little conference down there. Do you remember? What did he do down there? Do you ever wonder? On the Mount of Transfiguration, wasn't it Moses and Elijah that showed up? Before Jesus was crucified, what were they talking about? Moses and Elijah come up from paradise and they converse on the Mount of Transfiguration. When's it? It's happening soon. Is it happening soon? Yeah, it's happening soon. The secret plan is out. Jesus goes to the cross, then is buried, stone cold dead, under the ground, and then goes down to Hades. And what does he do? He takes the keys to death in Hades itself and, and shows them to Satan and says, all of those people who are in cages, let them out. Let my people go. Jesus is the stronger Moses. Jesus is the stronger deliverer. Can you imagine Moses' face lighting up with joy as Jesus takes the key? to death itself, and says, today you are with me in paradise. Jesus unlocks cages. Jesus rattles cages. Look at him. That's good news. The plan is beginning to take shape. And this means that it's not just for the elect, but for everybody. Good news. It's not just for one moment in time, but for all eternity. No FOMO. That's what Paul is saying. No FOMO. No FOMO, y'all. You don't have to fear of missing out. You're not going to miss out on God's goodness. His, his plan is taking shape right when, right when he wants it to take shape. Good news. Not just for one geographical area. But for every corner of the globe and the cosmos, good news. Not just for all the guilt and the shame and violence that humans have heaped on ourselves and one another, but that all the innocence and dignity and peace in the person of Jesus is ours. Good news. And not just because we yearn for a good Hollywood ending, it's all going to be, because we Americans long for the good story. 
We want the good guys to win and the bad guys to lose, but that's not what's written in this book. We're in an apocalyptic story, but we know who wins in the end. It's because of the Father's character, his goodness, his mercy, and his heart is overflowing with love for us. Good news. God keeps his promises. Then in Ephesians 3.8, Jesus equips the called. Jesus equips the called. Paul says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given, given to me. It's by revelation. It's not through thinking your highest thoughts. It's through encounter. Always, that's the way the kingdom comes. Always through encounter. You can't think your way into good graces with God. Ever. When has that ever worked? Well, it's never worked for me. Has it worked for you? It's by encounter. It's by experience. It's by the road to Damascus. More on that in a second. He says, I'm the le- I am less than least of any available Christian. I am the worst possible example of somebody to bring the good news to other people is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying God couldn't have gotten it more wrong when he chose me to share the good news with the Gentiles. Paul's name was Saul of Tarsus. We talked about his name change a few months ago and what that means. Paul is like a romanization of Saul. And it actually means, we don't know if this was like a nickname that people gave him or this was his Roman name or he was using it in order to draw Gentiles in. But what it means is it means little one. Did you know that? That Paul's, Paul means little one. Who knows what Paul looked like? We, what we can gather about what Paul looked like, his conversion, Paul's conversion was the last thing that anybody expected. From what we can gather, Paul was short, he was fat, he was bow-legged, bald, and a unibrow with protruding eyes. Can you picture him? You're saying, no, I'm looking at him right now. (laughs) It doesn't make me feel as bad anymore when I look in the mirror. Do you ever walk around, guys, and all day you're like, dude, Brad Pitt, I'm Brad Pitt, I'm Brad Pitt, and then you get home and you look in the mirror and you're like, crap. Jack Nicholson. Paul is the least of these. And sometimes it's like, sometimes it's like he's this this God-forsaken creature who's like waddling around. And then people say other times he was like an angel filled 
with grace. What is that? What is that about God? He's always doing this. What is it about God who looks at, who looks at all of the sons lined up, all of the handsome ones, and says, no, the king isn't here. Do you have any others? And the father says, I don't think so. Meanwhile, David's in the sheep pen, cleaning up sheep poo. That's where the king is, mucking out stalls. What is it about God that he's always doing this? When it comes to hide Israel's spies and messengers, he doesn't use the CIA or the FBI or a safe house. He uses a hooker. And likewise, when he goes to eat and the Pharisees and the religious judge the crap out of him, what are you doing here? You keep company with, with that objectifying the woman who's got her hair down and Spilling perfume on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, it's her. It's her that I remember. It's her whose story will be told for thousands of years. Whenever the gospel is shared, she's going to get remembered. Not you, the religious who just want to clean up corpses, but her, the prostitute. What is it about him? He, he calls he calls, he equips the called. When God calls, he equips. When God calls, he enables. When God calls, he provides. When God calls you, he qualifies you. Nothing can disqualify you from the destiny and future that's resting upon your life. God equ equips the called. How do you know that this is true, that I'm telling you this, that this is the truth? Well, let me just... Wrap it up with this. Isaiah 6, 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Hebrews 13, 21. May he equip you. He equips you. With all you need for doing his will, may he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him, all glory to him forever and amen. Ephesians 2.10, we just read, where the poema of God equipped, prepared, these things are already prepared for us to step into. Jeremiah 32.27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me, he says, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And Philippians 2, 13, For it is God who works in you, both will and to work for his good pleasure. And so lastly is this, is that if you say yes to Jesus, you can expect to be in over your head. You're going to feel at times that you are not called to the thing Jesus is calling you to do. And whether that's through opposition, 
from within or from outside, you're going to feel. And that doesn't stop. I've spoken with dear old saints who are 90, 95 years old, and that doesn't stop. Regardless of where you're at in your journey, if you've been following Jesus five minutes or 50 years, you will at times feel in over your head. And my encouragement here is just say yes. It feels so good just to say yes to Jesus when, when Jesus calls you. Oh, I lost it. When Jesus calls you, just say yes. And here's, here's, dang, I'm over. Ephesians 3.10. We talked about the three signposts. Here's the last one. This is really key. Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church, you people, who Paul is talking to now, through the local church, impossible. God's purpose and intent was through the, is through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What's wisdom? Wisdom's found in a person, in the person of Jesus. The manifold wisdom of God should now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Hot dog! That's amazing. What Paul just said is the result that you may feel in over your head because this is an impossible assignment, the recreation of all things. You can't do that on your own. I can't do that on my own. None of us can do it. Save Jesus Christ. This is the key. His intent through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What is Paul saying? What Paul is saying is this, that his purpose, God's purpose, the rulers and authorities that try to carve up this world to suit their own needs, the powers that be that use money and sex and power itself, They want to force us into their mold. The political structures and the sociological structures that want to make us live in their way. And Paul says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh. Mm-mm. Being part of the church through, in Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be the sort of family that through our mere existence tells the principalities and the powers of this world, lets them know that Jesus is Lord and they are not. Amen. Jesus is Lord and they are not. The local church is a group of people, a family. We are a family that the structures of this world could never create because the structures of this world are always trying to carve us up 
and separate us, but God is into taking two halves and bringing them together to make one thing, one new man and woman, one humanity under the lordship of Jesus. So any time that the rulers and principalities and powers try to carve us up, we remind them in our mere existence that we're here, that Jesus thought us up, us up, those who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Not just as a sign of hope for the things that are to come. Remember Revelation 7, every tribe, tongue, and nation. But as a sign of rebuke to the powers and authorities of this world, both spiritual. Well, what he's saying is it's all spiritual. It's all headed one way. And to rebuke and say, no, you don't run things here. You don't control things here. Jesus is Lord, and you are not. When the church is doing the Jesus thing, when the church is being the church, it's a sign to the powers that they don't run things, but that Jesus does. And we have to go on living and praying and being that as the local church, God's rescue mission through everyday, local, different people in this ragtag family called the church. Amen? That's who we're called to be. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. As we stand, we're going to respond.